Welcome again to another edition of Locked in Science, where we are producing our show from the safety of our homes instead of in the studio for reasons which I'm sure you're all too familiar with at this point. My name is Stu, and on the show this week, I have another award to talk about. Prime Minister's Prize for Science was awarded uh, in the last week. And four people were honoured with the... Four people? Uh, Prizes yeah. for science. Wow. Oh, yeah. or is it the one prize and four people? Yeah, it's the one prize. They're going to have to split it up and haggle over who gets what. But, um, yeah, four mm. people have got the award, uh, got the prize this year. Um, and I'm going to talk about who they are and what they were awarded for, what they won the prize for uh, oh, later great. in the show. Claire, what have you got for us this week? Well, this week on the show, we have a guest. It's been a couple of weeks since we've had a guest, but this week we have Olaf Meinecker, who is a marine scientist from Griffith University. And Olaf specializes, his his research is on uh, migratory whales. So humpback whales traveling up and down the East Coast. Um, And if you didn't know, Stu, the uh, whale migration has pretty much just wrapped up. Um, So for all of our listeners up and down um, the East Coast who have been watching the whales um, over the last couple of months um, and, you know, wondering what's going on, uh, what are the effects of climate change on whales, um, how how have krill levels been going, um, what's whale population like, well, Olaf is going to talk to us all about it. And as well, um, let us in on some of those methods of how you actually research whales. They are quite large, so, you know. Yeah, it's it's not all that easy. Not, not everyone has it easy as I had when I was a kid where I would just walk to the end of my street and I would be able to see the whales <laughs> swimming up and down the coast. Really? Oh, well, Stu, you're a whale watcher from way back. Yeah, yeah. It was when I was very little, and we lived in Dover Heights in Sydney, and basically the end of the street was the cliff tops, just north of Bondi Beach, and you could see the whales every migration season. You just stand there and check them out, watch, watch them, them in go and out. past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were pretty much your neighbours. But I didn't get to know that much about them. Just that they looked really cool, and I could see them from behind the fence because we weren't allowed on the cliffs when I was little. <laughs> that is also fair enough. Um, well, Olaf is going to take us through um, a whole lot of research uh, results and um, things that we need to think about in terms of um, looking to the effects of climate change on whales as well. Cool. Well, stay tuned for all of that. We'll have a whale of a time, can I say?
The Prime Minister's Prize for Science this year has gone to four scientists who were working on gravitational waves who were part of the international team of 1,000 people who detected the waves way back in 2015. Remember 2015? Yeah, I mean, when gravitational waves um, were detected, yeah, it seems like a simpler time now, doesn't it? (laughs) It really does. Uh, It does seem quite a while ago. But yeah, so four, four scientists all working on different aspects of the discovery or the detection of gravitational waves. So Susan Scott, who works at the Australian National University, was one of the four scientists uh, recognised with the prize. She's been looking for gravitational waves for 25 years. Oh, wow. And, yeah, and and in the late 90s, apparently it was considered a bit of an iffy area. People thought, oh, no, it's not that you're not going to find anything there looking for that stuff. Um, but she sort of went, oh, no, I think there's something in it, and it does seem to be a, uh, you know, a, a result of Einstein's theories and all that sort of stuff, but it took, you know, over 100 years to actually show that this was a real thing. Um, she is actually the first female physicist to receive the Prime Minister's Prize for Science. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Uh, Susan Scott shares the award with Peter Veach, who's from the University of Adelaide, David Blair from the University of Western Australia, and David McClelland, also from ANU. Um, Susan Scott started working with Roger Penrose, who just won the Nobel Prize. Oh. Um, and that was in the UK. And um, she started working on gravitational waves when she returned to Australia in the early 90s. And the gravitational waves were detected by the LIGO Observatory in India, in part using technology developed in Australia, which they measured basically two black holes crashing together, which is a massive gravitational event, and that's the event that they actually measured the gravitational waves from. Um, But I just thought we should congratulate all the winners of the Prime Minister's Science Prize uh, even if his understanding of science may be lacking, it's clearly a well-deserved award. You're travelling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop... Lost in science. If you are lucky enough to live on the east coast of Australia, you might be familiar with the site of the yearly migration of humpback whales travelling up and down the coast from June and finishing right about now in November. But how are we studying whale populations and how is our rapidly changing climate impacting on one of the greatest migrations that Australians bear witness to each year? To talk us through how this happens, we have with us Olaf Meinecke, marine scientist from Griffith University. Olaf, welcome to Lost in Science. Thank you so much for having me. Now, Olaf, why do humpback whales migrate along the East Coast every year? 
Yes, so this is an annual cycle that has been taken part for at least 10,000 years, so we would assume since the last Ice Age, and then of course even before that, because uh, humpback whales have been around for maybe up to 5 million years, so they are going up and down the coast, not because they just love traveling so much, but they're doing it for the babies, so it's all for the babies, and if they want to have a successful breeding, um, they really need to be in warmer water, so it's uh, it's much better for the calves because they can grow faster um, they don't need that much energy to use to thermoregulate to keep themselves warm um, and uh, usually the waters are a lot uh, calmer in, in sort of you know like around the Great Barrier Reef for instance a lot more sheltered than the open southern ocean where you've got uh, strong waves and winds so then that sort of brings them into this sort of tropic, tropical areas where they can give birth, but unfortunately there's no food there. So that's why they have to move all the way down to Antarctica and find the krill and find the fish, so mostly krill, and gain those fat reserves within three months um, and then just utilize these fat reserves through the remaining nine months of the year. So it's a, it's a very sort of uh, fine timely planned exercise that um, is not without risk of course. How long does it actually take them to get from Antarctica up to where they're giving birth? Well because I mean you know you, you think about like a large tanker or so you know they don't travel fast but because they have a constant speed and in this case you know the, their speed will be somewhere between um, three to six kilometers per hour. So that means within two months, they can pretty much reach their um, breeding areas uh, when they leave Antarctica. So usually they would be leaving around February um, and latest March, and then it will take them about two, two and a half months until they reach um, New South Wales and the, and the coastline. And you said that they don't eat the whole time that they're migrating. So the last meal would have been in, in Antarctica and then the next meal is in Antarctica. But the whole time they have to travel and give birth and, and um, presumably feed a baby. Yes, and this is where it's like, you know, really amazing survival strategy because those fat reserves obviously are stored um, in that blubber in this, in this really sort of thick layer of fat around the animal that keeps them basically going. And uh, I mean, you know, uh, Tesla would be uh, supposedly jealous of uh, energy reserve like this. I mean, this is an amazing battery and it lasts for months and months, keeping these animals going. And of course, this is where the size comes from. I mean, there is obviously a selection pressure that the larger animals who can have more fat reserves um, are the ones that will, you know, continue to breed more successfully. And that's why the animals end up being so large. That's one of the explanations. Um, there are limits, of course, if you get too big, then you use too much energy trying to get from A to B. But if you have the right size, you can store enough and it still gets you around uh, without using too much energy. So, yeah, it is an incredible. They do sometimes have snacks in between. So you'll find that, you know, which we actually just recently had off the coast of New South Wales. We had them feeding on krill there, some feeding actually just of Sydney, uh, witnessed by some divers. And then there was some large groups uh, of humpback whales feeding 
um, a little bit further south of Sydney as well, up to 150 individuals apparently. So there is snacks that will keep them going a little bit, but not everyone is lucky to get that sort of stopover for a snack. Um, and, you know, some will have to starve for, for up to nine months. Now, um, we sort of alluded to it, but what in your research, what is the effect will climate change have on whale migration? Yes, so as, as we just spoke about like how finely planned or like, you know, how sort of crucial time is in that, in that migration pattern and, and how important it is to get the food at the right time. Um, and that's, that's exactly where the, the climate change impacts the largest. So it's not, it's not the one or two degree temperature increase that we get in average in the ocean. The whales are handling 20 degrees of temperature difference every year during their migration. The problem is that when they arrive at their location where they usually find food, and it's actually the same areas every year, they've got very distinct locations that they go to. And if the food isn't there, or it has been there, but they arrived a couple of weeks too late, then there is a shortage. And it's actually causing a major problem for them because they have to start searching for food. And if they start searching, it means they use energy to find the food and it will cause issues that are flow on effects. So does it mean they can't breed the following year because they don't have enough fat reserves? or they won't be able to do the migration because they just have to decide that they can't do the whole like movement. And one thing that we're still trying to figure out is what triggers the animals to leave the Antarctic waters. So when do they know it is time to stop hanging around, waiting? They've opened the fridge, they've taken out all the food, and then the, the fridge is empty. And are you still waiting around for someone to put new stuff in the fridge, or, or do you just leave? And that's something that is actually really extremely interesting it's an issue for all the other whales that are down there as well other species so when are they when do they know that they have enough food and that they have enough reserves and start going but this is where the problem is so if we're seeing these changes in the water and things that we don't think about is well their food source is krill so what does krill depend on it depends on on the phytoplankton bloom which is an algae bloom and what does the algae depend on? It actually depends on the release of micronutrients, which is often iron, but also other elements that are released from the ice. So if the mm -hmm. ice melts too fast, mm -hmm. then that release happens very quickly over a couple of weeks and there's a massive bloom, but it's all over after that. Whereas if normally the ice would melt relatively slowly and it will take maybe a few more weeks until all the ice is melted and it will allow the phytoplankton boom to continue over uh, several more weeks than it usually does. So this is where we see the biggest problem, that those blooms are actually shorter. They're still happening, but if the whales are missing the window of opportunity, they will miss the food. And in your research, are you seeing any behaviours that are changing in the whales already? Yeah, so we, uh, we certainly see that um, there's a lot of uh, carving happening in temperate and in subtropical waters instead of the tropical waters. So we've seen newborns coming from New South Wales and it's not like small numbers, we're talking about hundreds. And so there is, seems to be a strategy now that 
it's the shortening of the migration and it will help them of course reducing the amount of uh, energy that that they need and fat reserves that they need if they give birth in new south wales and then just hang around or move up a little bit into the subtropical waters um wait or feed the calf until it's big enough and then actually turn around um and the other thing that we've noticed is a very like there's a an earlier um, migration happening with higher number of whales coming in earlier so we're starting to see you know numbers increasing now around may um where usually you know we we get sort of it was uh, the start of june so there is there's more animals coming in earlier whether this obviously people will argue this is attributed to the increase of population but there hasn't been that much of a difference in the last 10 years in terms of population increase we're sitting somewhere between 25 to maybe 35,000 in the last 10 years to now. So it's something that seems to be almost a strategy for them to reduce the migration pattern. So we see changes there. And of course, you know, we're, we're going to see other shifts and that includes more feeding outside the traditional feeding areas. So mm. with our partners that we work together in South Africa, they've already had for over 10 years feeding happening of the west coast of South Africa and, and these animals started mm -hmm. feeding on on other um, animals that they normally have not ever been feeding on or at least we didn't know about it um, in such intensity so you know there are strategies now that are starting to come in place for them to find other food sources and another great example is the animals that the humpback whales up in North America, they started to move closer to shore to feed on fish, right. which caused then more entanglements um, in fishing gear. So there's actually been a great study out that really showed because of these heat waves in the ocean, the whales had to find food closer to shore, which which make them more, you know, uh, more likely to be entangled in fishing gear. Right. So is that something that we um, that Australia can learn from that that we can prepare for potentially? Well, in particular, if we look into like conservation and how do we want to manage those coming changes, um, which is what our project is looking into, like how do we, what is the future going to look like in terms of migration for the for the humpback whales? And one of the things that we are suggesting is to have mobile protection zones. So instead of saying, well, you know, we've got the Great Bear Reef uh, Marine Park and it's nicely protected, but if the whales don't actually tend to go there that much anymore, mm. if they start having the calves further south, we need to adapt to this and we need to ensure that in particular where the calves are, these areas need protection because unfortunately the disturbance from vessels, boat strikes or fishing gear is often very, um, well, it's mm. bad and quite traumatic for, for those uh, newborns. They need a couple of weeks of actual rest. It impacts on the tourism industry as well, like all the whale watch operators that depend on the returning migration every year and the same patterns if these patterns are changing then the industry will have to adapt to this as well science the final frontier these are the voyages of lost in science our ongoing mission to explain strange new words to seek out new science and new explanations to boldly go where no radio has gone before
Now, Olaf, you've um, talked a bit about the research that you do. I'm sure everyone is as curious as I am about what sort of tools and methods you use to research whale migration. Yeah, so, I mean, firstly, it's the most boring thing is to actually use data that's already there. So, I mean, one of my main tasks for the entire program that we're running is to actually collect as much sighting data on humpback whales that exist. And um, and that's going to be probably the largest sighting database um, on the planet for, for humpback whales. So, um, which is really important for us because we need to verify our models. So the other component on how we do things is, is model basically, but we need data to be able to validate how, how good our models are. And, and the, the kind of models that we're using are actually individual based models. So we technically model every single whale and make them move through time and space. Um, wow. And then we still have we still have the exciting field component that everyone thinks is what the marine biologist does, like <laughs> being out in the water and being surrounded by amazing animals and sunshine and clear blue water. Um, and but so that know, still, still exists. exists. So we yeah. we do yes yes it still exists. It's uh, it does happen you know occasionally. Um, and so we we also actually collect whale poo. So. Um, that's not personally because uh, we don't have we don't really get any whale poo because they don't eat here, but our colleagues in South Africa um, who go down to Antarctica they do collect whale poo, um, and we're looking at you know what kind of nutrients are actually in in the whale poo and and link that to what comes out of the phytoplankton out of the algae and link it back to the um, sea ice edge that contains some of those um, uh, trace elements. There is also the exciting components that I can do or research that I can do is using uh, tags. So we, we uh, tag the animals to see what their fine scale movements are. So where are the mums and calves going for, you know, the crucial time of their feeding? And that links into like, what do we need to protect or like, you know, in future sort of scenarios, what suitable areas are there for mums and calves further down south. And then we also collect uh, size using drones. So you get aerial image to look at the size differences during the northern and southern migration. And then also looking in particular at at mothers and calves. So how big and how fat are the mums? Um, And then we also collect whale mucus when the animals breathe out uh, <laughs> using the drones at the same time so so it's it's everything uh, and then doing classic things like fluke identification so we go out and we take photos of the individuals and and identify individuals just to see we can see when do they come and how 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 precise are they in their migration and they are very precise usually within days they arrive in the same spot every year um, can I just ask, how do you, or can you identify a humpback whale from sight? Yes, yeah, so they have the the their flukes, so their tail is. Um, oh, their flukes, their tail, right? Yes, yes. So, the tail so identification. Exactly. Yeah, so they have unique, you know, patterns and coloration and shape of their fluke, and the underside of the fluke is what we need to get. So it doesn't always work out, but it's definitely. 
a great way of identifying and it's non-invasive um so all the techniques that uh, we're using are non-invasive anyway my apologies i did not know that particular whale anatomical term so that's something that i've learned today fluke for the tail oh there you go um <laughs> i mean it sounds like you've um you and your team have collected a an incredible amount of data about the migration are there any sort of learnings any any anything from the data any results from the data preliminary results or otherwise that you can share with us from this year um well in particular i mean this this has been a very interesting year in terms of migration and i think it might partially because la nina which is a so like you know a climatic phase that we're entering at the moment and it started in august and it probably has an impact on the whale migration because we've seen this in the past and and we noticed that we have a very like we had we had whales in march um and and that's extremely early which means these animals never went down to antarctica so the other observation that we had was the end of the season ended quite quickly around the 14th of October. It wasn't a real ending, but it was a very sharp drop in numbers of whales. We've uh, heard reports that uh, Jervis Bay, which is normally a resting area for mothers and calves, that they had hardly any any mothers and calves entering the bay, um, which makes me suspect that uh, we probably had most of the mums and calves resting elsewhere um, further up north and that they were already so like grown up um, that they just didn't need to go in that area. But mostly it's that sharp drop in numbers around mid-October that was a bit unusual uh, compared to previous years. Um, uh, but of course, the interesting thing is if we can start looking at, you know, many cycles of many years and then we have all these different data sets from various groups we are still in the process trying to create this database because as you can imagine, people unfortunately don't collect exactly the same data in the same way everyone else does. And Olaf, I have to ask, what was your most exciting encounter with a whale this season? Yes, so we were we were out on our small rib, so it's a small inflatable boat and you're only about maybe 50 centimetres away from the water. And, uh, and we, we were approaching... I think it was about three whales in there and it was in August this year. And um, I just made this new pole, a long pole for my GoPro. And I remember we were coming in and like slowing down and we stopped the engine and next thing, and I'm at the, at the bow of the boats at the front and I'm looking up and I can see one of the whales like on the surface coming straight towards me, like almost looking like it was going to like, I don't know, going straight over the boat but it was it was in reasonable speed but it was on the surface swimming and I was like so excited because I knew it was going to check us out and I was mucking around with the long the new pole and the GoPro didn't start it immediately and then while I was like playing around with the stupid pole I noticed that when I looked up I had a whale head about <gasps> half a meter away from my head and so this animal was just like rising its head out of the water everyone around me was screaming and taking photos while I was busy trying to work my GoPro pole and so that was an incredible encounter and I did end up actually having a short moment where I was able to put the GoPro in the water and and I got some amazing footage where the animal was, you know, clearly so close to me that almost bummed into me. So it was it was just an, an amazing moment. And these moments are so exciting because it's just often out of the blue. You kind of don't expect it. You don't 
yeah. know fully what they're going to do. And suddenly, you know, you are so close to one of these largest animals on the planet and they are just so curious about what's happening on that boat and why everyone is screaming. And uh, these, <laughs> these sub-adults are often a bit more um, inquisitive. And so it was, that was the highlight pretty much. Um, and I wish I would have not wasted that time uh, trying to get that new GoPro pole working. <laughs> well, Olaf, Monica, thank you for taking us on a whale of a journey. I cannot wait till next year to see our cetacean friends and um, hear more about the results from your recent research. Thanks again, Olaf. That's all we've got time for for this week and we are rapidly running out of time. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook. We are broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. And if you would like to tune in next week, Chris, Stu and Claire will get locked in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.